Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Orthodoxical Podcast. It's your host, Kyle Baumgartner, and I'm thrilled to be able to bring you this episode. I got to talk with Josh Proctor Guzman, who is a minister with the Christian Missionary Alliance in North America. He has also done a lot of really amazing work with an organization called Posture Shift, uh, which is a ministry that seeks to help churches that hold a traditional view of marriage and sexual ethics uh, become more welcoming and accepting and and really a safe place for LGBTQ plus members in their church. Uh, Josh is a super smart and, and thoughtful dude, but also incredibly compassionate and wise. And um, I'm just grateful for his for his story and his insights that he shares. Uh, he also has a, a podcast that he hosts called Life on Side B, which you all should definitely check out. Uh, when you get the chance. And yeah, we will jump right into this podcast episode with Josh Proctor Guzman. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Orthodox School Podcast. My name is Kyle Bumgarner, and I am here with uh, a new friend, Josh Proctor. And so Josh is ordained in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, he actually recently just finished up a stint working uh, with the CMA denomination in Colombia. And uh, he has previously worked for Posture Shift, which is an organization that works with churches and helping them better minister and, and serve uh their LGBT plus members. And Josh is also the host of the Life on Side B podcast, which you should definitely check out uh, if you're if you're listening to this. Uh, they do some really great work. They have some really great, important conversations. Uh, definitely check them out. So Josh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting. Yeah. With my bio, I probably, you've caught me at the weirdest time when I have ended so many of my endeavors to the point where I'm unemployed. So my my resume probably doesn't sound as exciting <laughs> with all of that. I, I didn't want to tell everyone that you were unemployed, but now you just did. So I'm glad that you brought it up and not me. I, like I said, I'm probably the most random person, like most relaxed person ever with this stuff. But yes, I am transitioning into new roles. Um, so it's very exciting. But um, yeah, I love the CMA, ordained with the CMA, and um, still Posture Shift is my home and my family as well. So um, I'm glad to be here with you. Well, thank you. Uh, Josh, can you, can you just, to start off, give us a brief overview of your sort of spiritual and theological journey, sort of uh, where you've been, where you find yourself now, and um, all the fun stuff in between? Yeah, it's been quite a journey. Um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist family, okay. um, youngest of five, and um, a lot of my uh, spiritual journey is connected also to my journey of understanding myself and my sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I was gay from very early on, about fourth grade, um, and uh, my parents found out about me being gay from a very early age as well. Um, and so I, a lot of my, um, a lot of my faith journey is tied, um, to going, I went through conversion therapy eight times in my life. Um, wow. yeah, some of that was forced. Other ones were chosen. 
Mm-hmm. And when I say chosen was more of, I didn't really know another option. You, yeah. you were told many times, um, those of us who are LGBT that are raised in the conservative church are given this idea of you are either try to become straight to follow Jesus or you're yeah. gay and you hate God. Like mm-hmm. those are your options. Yeah. And um, a lot of that in my story got mixed in between going in between times of conversion therapy, trying to become straight. And then when I realized it wouldn't happen, going to live the quote unquote gay lifestyle as we're told. And, um, and um, getting involved in, um, in just a, a much more dark life of, um, um, as I just kind of rejected God and was like, I'm just gonna do what I want. So um, as I kind of stood between these two polar ideas, I finally came to a place of um, accepting God and being like, God, I I need you in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that that's true, but I don't know what to do about this whole area of my sexuality because I know that these two extremes that I've been presented with don't work. Mm -hmm. And um, for a while I found myself in affirming um, communities uh, as what we call a side A Christian, Mm -hmm. um, meaning that, you know, I believed that God blessed gay marriage um, and sexual relationships. And then um, was in an amazing relationship with a guy for a while, but then had an experience with God where I felt he was calling me to give that relationship over to him and to follow him into celibacy. And I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't know where this fit. Again, all I knew was ex-gay or you just like reject God or or anything yeah. in those things. Uh, so I gave up my relationship um, with um, that I was in at the time. And it was probably one of the hardest things in my life that I've ever done. Yeah. Um, but it was also one of probably the most intimate times of my life with God because he dealt with my anger. He dealt with my raw emotions, yeah. everything I was took before God. I um, And since after that for a while, I went through a period where I said, I'm just not going to deal with this. Like, it's just not, (laughs) we're done. I'm just going to like follow God, not have sex. And that's it. Like, that's just the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, great, great principles to live by. Um, And so I lived like that for a while. And that's when I got involved in the Christian Missionary Alliance and began working. And I just, you know, grew in my faith. But then uh, when the pole shooting happened in Orlando, yeah, it, it really impacted me a lot. And I was a kid, I was living in Columbia, South America, um, as I said, working with, working with the Alliance. And I just felt God tugging at my heart, your community needs you. Mm, yeah. And I was like, I'm a kid in Columbia, like what, what am I gonna do? You know, I, I don't even know what I believe on this stuff like anymore. And I don't know what I'm going to do in any of that. And then later on, I was doing a class uh, in, I was doing my master's in Old Testament and Hebrew at a university in Nyack, in um, New York uh, called Nyack College. And I was up there for an intensive class one, um, one year. And I was walking through Manhattan because I visited the city while I was on there. And I noticed I went into Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen, which is a predominantly gay area of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I noticed I couldn't see any churches. Mm. I saw churches in other areas of the city, but I didn't see them there. 
And I took it to one of my professors who noticed I was like really bothered by this. And he said, um, I I explained what happened and I was really annoyed by this fact. And he goes, well, the, the, the gay community doesn't want the gospel. And I was like, so you don't go? Mm. Like, that makes no sense. Like, if we applied this to missions in the Middle East, right? Oh, the Muslims don't want the gospel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're just not gonna go. Like, no, you don't do that. Um, the gospel's for everyone, mm. no matter with whether we want to share it with them or not. And so, for me, that pushed me to go. I need to do something. And people are dying. Like what happened in the Pulse shooting, and. Christians just, there's so many Christians that don't want to approach this topic. And so that brought me on a long journey to a place kind of where I'm at now, where I have come to a place that accept that, yes, I, I am gay. Uh, you normally use the term gay or same-sex attracted if, if uh, in certain cases, if people have a huge issue with the term gay. And, um, but I have committed myself to celibacy um, because I believe that that, is how God has called me to express my sexuality and and finding a beautiful way of life and thriving within that, that like seeing celibacy is not simply a vocation of no, of like not having sex, but a vocation of yes to community and to extreme joy in my life. And that doesn't mean it hasn't been involved suffering as I've explained, but really coming to a place of like I said, joy in this. Yeah, man, there's just so much I want to unpack in that, but I mean, praise God for your story and just the way that the ways that he's uh, ordained it and, and worked in your life, man. That's, that's a, just an incredible, um, uh, yeah, incredible to hear in so many ways. And, and, and we'll kind of get into this a little bit more later, but one of the things I was just really struck by um, and particularly as, as I'll say, as someone who's fairly new to a lot of these conversations um, and is, is in a lot of ways trying to play catch up, but the, I think that your experience of uh, just the two polarities is just so common. Like, I don't know if you have conversations with people where they, they say kind of the same thing, but I know that like for people that I've, you know, people that I've talked to or, or things that I've read or what I've talked about, it just, it seems like you're presented with essentially these two options, um, which are, like you said, either stop being gay or um, be, be completely gay, be completely gay into um, and not even just like be completely gay, but be completely gay and, and get into things that our culture tells us are, are quote unquote gay and just kind of embrace like every ounce of that. And that becomes your, your new sort of community. And that, and that, and the way that it's presented is that that will always be at odds with Christianity. Yeah. Is, is that sort of, um, is that accurate or do you feel like that's a common trend? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I think especially, so I'm 30 years old mm-hmm. and I represent kind of the end of the, like, of those who were teenagers during um, Exodus International, which for anyone who doesn't know, Exodus International back in the 20, 1990s and 2000s was um, predominantly, was the largest ex-gay ministry 
and it closed. I cannot remember when, but it was like the 2010. It was like early 2010s when. It yeah, um, and so I was a teenager during that time, and so a lot of the conversion therapy I went through was in that time, um, and so a lot of people my age and older, especially, were presented with these two extremes of you could either pursue to be straight um, and to in order to follow God, or you couldn't follow God at all. And the gay lifestyle was promoted as this idea of promiscuity and drugs and like all this different kind of stuff, like that's it. And I am very encouraged to see that there's a generation behind me that now is growing up in a post exodus world where I, I know a lot of people younger than me in their twenties and their teens now who've never experienced conversion therapy and, um, and are now presented with new forms of what it looks like to be um, to be gay and Christian and in a way that honors God. Um, we have things like Revoice and like Washington Waiting has been written by amazing Wesley Hill. And like, you have all of these different books on um, and like the Q Christian Fellowship has tried to make space for um, side B celibate people. And so like, you have a lot of spaces now where people are able to find it. Um, but I would say especially for people like 30 and up who were um, either raised in an environment where ministries like Exodus were very prominent, um, you find it a lot of like, those were the two extremes and that's it. And, and I think what happens is for those of us who were raised in that, where those were the only two options you gave, the two extremes played off of each other because like for in my life, yes. mm -hmm. yeah. And why, like, I talked to a lot of my friends who I went through conversion therapy with, and um, I find that a lot of them have gone through these two extremes of, like, being in, like, re recovery from drugs and all of this stuff, and the ex-gay narrative would use that as, ex like, an example, like, see, this is what happens. Exactly. But what really, as I learned, has happened is when you grow up in this narrative of ex-gay, you know, um, ex-gay culture, and you're presented with, you can be gay or you can be Christian and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you try to become straight and it, it's never on the blame of not becoming straight is never on the fault of the therapist or the leader. It's always on your, you haven't tried hard enough yet. You, yeah. you need to just keep working at it and you go, well, I guess I must not be good at this. So I guess I'm going to go that, try that other thing that they were talking about yeah. mm -hmm. the gay lifestyle. And so you go and do it right. and it's not fulfilling and it's not great. And then so then you go, oh, the ex-gay people must have been right. Um, and so then you go back. And so it plays into this like pendulum swing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. So, and I, I just want to, you know, briefly touch on this because I, um, you're very brave and vulnerable for, for sharing that. But for people who, who don't understand, um, so my, my background is in counseling and um, just the little that I have understood about conversion therapy, uh, y'all, is that it, it is incredibly damaging. Um, and not only that, but it, it doesn't work. They've done a lot of like longitudinal studies on it, just tracking kind of particularly organizations like Exodus International, where um, they've had people, um, you know, they've just kind of followed up with people over time. And most of the time, um, the the stated goal of, of making people straight was never achieved. And and so now it, it makes me happy to hear that there are um, conversations being had about like, okay, like this isn't working. It's actually incredibly harmful. It's, it's psychologically yeah. damaging in many ways. Um, and, and that there, people are being basically being presented 
with different options. So just just so folks like kind of have that that it, like conversion therapy is, is not um, is not something to be taken lightly or really yeah. uh, thought about with just a very kind of like flippancy. Um, yeah, and if I can say something there, go for it. Um, yeah, a lot of time I feel like people think when they think of conversion therapy, they think of like a kid being held down against his will and like, or being beaten with a Bible and, and or electric shock therapy. And I think those, those, some of those things were actually used, you know, decades, decades ago. And uh, nowadays, ex-gay conversion therapy normally takes the form of like talk therapy, um, which some people then go, well, how can that be bad? Like if you're just talking with someone mm-hmm. and, and I think the issue is not within the methods, but as you said, within the promises. Um, because many times there, there comes with this, this promise that if you go about these ways, that this is going to be the result. And there is an over heightened expectation of what that result would be. Um, when in reality, the reality that that, when, when reality, like the possibility of those results actually happening are very, very, very slim. Um, and then again, as I said, though, when those expectations are not met, it's put on the patient right as if they haven't done enough work yet um and it's never gotten to a point of going hmm maybe this is just not going to change um and so it really becomes a that to which then leads lgbt people into a lot of shame and stuff definitely and i think um and i think honestly for like from a counseling perspective um the methods are i mean it's like you said, the, the promises are incredibly harmful but the methods and and even just like the premise of um, the premise of like a therapist promising or like working through change with like a very particular sort of narrative that they're working from is is pretty in the in the ethics and things that that we're taught that that's not necessarily the way that things are supposed to go. Like there's yeah. a lot of like ethical um, quandaries that arise with that, just in terms of like the the impositions that that brings. So yeah, long long story short. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Uh, zero out of ten. Do not recommend uh, yes. whatsoever. So, um, in so in your journey, you eventually ended up working for a ministry called uh, called Posture Shift. So, can yes. you tell us how you kind of ended up working with them and sort of what Posture Shift is and and, and what they're looking to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so as I work with the Christian Missionary Alliance, when I first realized like I've got to do something, I talked with. Um, my board of the denomination and was like, let's do it. And they said, do a workshop. And I said, I don't know anything about this. I need training. (laughs) So I, (laughs) I was like, just because I'm gay does not mean I'm an expert. So what you're, you don't for your entire, I don't speak for this entire community perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I found posture shift online. And I booked a flight. I said, get me a flight to this training and I'm going to go. And I, cause I had a lot of ideas of how I thought all of this worked, but I didn't really know what to do. And I remember going to posture shift and I was like, this is it. This is how all of these things fit. So to explain what posture shift is, it's a missiological model for LGBT inclusion and care. And what we try to do in posture shift is explain to pastors that we need to approach this topic not as like a sexual ministry area of ministry, but as an un, like as a, as a people group, yeah. a people group that we have to care for and that this needs to be a senior leadership issue. This is no longer just someone that you just send off to something like as our culture shifts, 
the care of LGBT people needs to some, be something that we take care of at top leadership level within our churches. And we need to approach it from a missionary perspective. Um, if we think of the LGBT community as a people group, and they do, they qualify everything that we understand with as a people group. They have a culture, they have a way of speaking, they have a unified history um, and just life experience within that. And all of those things are the qualifications within a people group. So if we take that perspective and we think about it as a missionary, well then as a missionary, we're going to learn the language, history, and culture of that people right. in order to care for them, especially when we're talking about a marginalized and a highly victimized community. And so um, in our trainings that we do, which we have a per, uh, formatted two-day training that we do, we go through these things of what does it look like to be a missionary? What is the theology? We start with a theological base, which is really important because we want to make sure people think we realize we're not heretics. Uh, you know, important step. Important step. Show people you're not a heretic. Um, and then from that, we look into what is the history of the LGBT community? And what is this, what we really try to show is there's a lot of historic trauma within the LGBT community that may not have been placed on a single person, but they inherit from their community. And the church plays a huge part in that, mm -hmm. of having brought that upon the community. Yeah. And then we look at the culture and with culture, we don't mean like drag queens or anything like that though, mm -hmm. you know, that can be part of it. But we, we look at what does it look like to grow up gay? What, is it, what does a child go through yeah. as they're discovering their sexuality or their gender identity and how does that play into their spiritual development and then um the last one is language you know when when a when a uh, missionary is going to a people group they learn to speak the language of that people they don't expect the other the people group to learn their language no they learn the language and they learn how to not only translate the gospel into another language, but translate it into the culture and explain it in this way. Yeah. And so we need to then, even though we may speak the same language, English or Spanish or whatever language, we have to speak the language of LGBT people. Mm -hmm. um, and so many times, one of the biggest things I, I find that happens between Christians and LGBT people is that, you know, communication only works when both the both people in the conversation have the same meaning connected to the words. Yeah. And LGBT, the LGBT community in the church has very different meanings connected to a lot of these words like gay and like all of these different things. And even just the words of the church, like same sex attracted or gay lifestyle or mm -hmm. all of these things mean two very different things between the community. Right. And I think a lot of times what happens is the church says, well, why is it our responsibility to change the way we talk? And it's like, because we're the missionaries. We are the ones who must humble. If we believe in the outreach of the gospel and the importance of putting the gospel before every single person, then we have to humble ourselves yep. and go and meet people where they are at. And we can't expect people to meet them, meet us where we are. Mm. Yeah. That's so good, man. That's yeah. so good. Um, and I, I, the, the missiological framework, I think is, cause I think to your point of, or, or to your earlier story where, you know, you're in this neighborhood in Manhattan and there's no churches, it's because yeah. people haven't, or that like people don't want the gospel. It, the thing is, it's like, it's like you said, that not only is the gospel for everybody, I, I believe that like deep down, everybody really is longing for the gospel. They just don't realize it. Yes. And, and the reason and so it becomes incumbent upon us then 
to to like take the um, to take the posture of people that are going to to learn and and grow and try to understand. Like I mean, it, it's it's like you said for literally any other group of of people we would not like, we would, we would never think like, oh, we're just going to run up in there and like say this or like, oh, we just need to not like, we're, we're, it's like, we're going to cut our losses kind of thing. Like that's, like, that's crazy that we would say something like that, particularly as people of God. And so the, the missiological framework, I think is just a really cool way of framing kind of what that, what ministry looks like um, for, for queer folks. Yeah, I, I think that this is a huge thing. Like this also kind of connects to when when I, you know, being a member of the Christian Missionary Alliance, our big area, as our name says, is missions. You know, that's our focus. Right. We do, you know, international missions a lot. And um, so we talk a lot about in Acts where it says, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And many times we understand this as like geographical, like your city, your state, your country, and to the ends of the earth. And I remember doing a study of this going, but wait, like if we're thinking of Samaria as the country, Samaria is not the country where Judea is located. It's like the neighboring state. It'd be like, you're my um, my witnesses in your city, in Florida, Georgia, and the rest of the world. Like it's not the country. Right. And so I was like, so I don't understand why, why did Jesus mention Samaria? And as I began to look at it, I really believe um, that the reason why Samaria is listed in there is because it was the one place that the disciples probably never wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Of all the world, they would have rather gone to the Gentiles than to Samaria. And I feel like Jesus mentions them to go, no, even there, even in that people group that you do, you wish would never know God, you have to go there too. And I think that's why Jesus talks so much about Samaritans. He's talked to the Samaritan woman, the, the story of the good Samaritan. He's continually emphasizing this people group that you would rather never know God, that I'm here for them as well. And, yeah. and I think that's important in these kind of situations. We, we, we have to remember that no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, the gospel's for everyone. Yeah. Um, when I was in, I, I was involved with a, a ministry at college and we had this concept. They had, it was like, it was like, you know, confident yeses. And then it was like no's. And then we called them hell no kids. Yeah. And it was basically kids that are like kids that we would talk to that we wanted to meet Jesus that would basically say like hell no. Mm-hmm. And it's just, Jesus is all about the hell no people, you know? Oh yeah. Big time. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So in, um, in, in doing these trainings and, and working with postureship and, and kind of presenting these these workshops, um, what have been some of the responses that you've seen seen from churches? I imagine you probably get a get a pretty wide wide range of of things like that. Oh yes, yeah, definitely <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I mean we get we get yeah we get churches that are like no no sorry no, and we get churches that say this is what we've been looking for mm. forever. Um, I kind of have a joke that when people come into our trainings, um, as I said before, they initially think of us, you're heretics. Like by at the beginning of the first day of our trainings, we're all heretics, our team. And then as we go through and we explain the biblical foundation, we become humans, probably by the end of the first day. Okay, we're at least human. We're, we're, we're not that bad. And by the end of the second day, we're heroes in some way, normally, sometimes. Um, but I, the one thing I love about posture shift is I feel like there's something about helping pastors understand it from a missional perspective Mm -hmm. that helps just click in some way. So surprisingly, 
like I've experienced a lot of like backlash in my own personal life from Christians. But when it comes to posture shift, I feel there's something about that system that helps people get it in another way. They may not become absolute advocates at the beginning. Um, but even I remember one time we were, um, I asked Bill, the founder and creator of Posture Shift, back when I first started, I said, hey, how would you like to do this in Spanish? You know, we've created um, Guiding Families, our, Guiding Families of LGBT Loved Ones, which is our book we translated into Spanish. And we went and did a training in, in Colombia. And I had no idea how this was going to go. <laughs> it's like, Colombia is a very different territory than the United States. Oh, very like the, just, I think in other parts of the world, it's just like, there's like this very charismatic sort of understanding of, of like LGBT yeah. sexuality. And so you're like, oh man. Yeah, let's just say two com- two questions I get a lot in Colombia are about the demon of homosexuality and whether I can catch it if I'm too close to a gay person. <laughs> so I deal with these questions very often. Oh, you're fine. I laugh. Um, and so I did not know how this was going to go. And we ended up having some actually pretty big advocates of conversion therapy at the training who mm. got up and continually asked a ton of questions and were very pushback, providing a lot of pushback. And I was like, I'm going to get fired now <laughs> for proposing this idea of having this training. Right. Um, but the craziest thing was even those pastors who were like, how can you be like talking down about conversion therapy and saying that like we, these people don't need to be straight kind of thing we had like two of them come up to us at the end and was like, this is the best training I've ever seen. And it really helped them see the the damage of what the format of how they were doing was actually causing to LGBT people. There's something about helping pastors see it from the missionary perspective that just helps click it. And I mean, I could go on with story. We've seen so many churches that have really embodied this. Um, Another one that I would just say is the other, my other favorite one that um, was we, we did a training for a church in Orlando, uh, First Baptist of Orlando, actually. And we were, doing, we were doing trainings there and we got to hear about how something that they don't talk about, they don't announce this, they don't use this as publicity, but they shared it with us. And it really impacted me as someone who was impacted by the pulse shooting at the, after the pulse shooting, which the pulse shooting happened on Latino night at the Pulse nightclub. So it was mostly Latino, uh, La- Latinos that died. Um, and so the city of Orlando called First Baptist Orlando saying, you have a Spanish ministry. We need people to minister to the families of these, mm-hmm. um, the people who died because most of them only spoke Spanish. Yeah. And um, many of them ended up um, were, they actually had an opportunity to go in and care for these families. Wow. in the midst of this suffering and being able to care for them and walk with them through the loss of their loved one and being able just to care for the community and not with anything of what we're trying to get out of you, but simply going, we're here and we care, you know? Um, and so we've been able to see beautiful things like that. Um, and even just so many different ways I could go on forever. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. Just, just to hear, and it's, it's weird. It's funny how like, you know, as, as much, you know, as much flack as, as a lot of like more conservative leaning churches get, which, you know, a lot of it is rightly deserved. And I will, you know, I'm probably a chief propagator of that, but 
I think there have been times where it just like for some reason, and I think I basically just attributed to the Holy Spirit, but just like people just rise to the occasion. It's something about yeah. like seeing people, seeing people who are in pain. Cause I remember in addition to that, there were also like, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of churches locally that donated blood and there were, you know, ch churches that like got involved in that way. And, and it was kind of like, and you think, and particularly like when you think about the, you know, like the history of, um, of like, of like AIDS and, um, yes. and kind of like those, you know, those potential like undercurrents with like, oh my gosh, like, what is this going to do? Like all these different things and how people just really kind of, you know, basically just kind of cast a lot of that stuff off and, um, yeah. and rose to the occasion to help people. It was, it was pretty amazing to see. So. Yeah. I, part of that. Absolutely. And, and I think like one of the difficult parts in this process of past, you know, churches embodying posture shift is I, we many times will say, if you're coming into this, do not, you do not expect that you're going to end up being a hero in this because um, many times, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with a community that has historical trauma and just countless occasions from concentration camps in Nazi Germany to the AIDS epidemic, to all of these different situations where the church just threw LGBT people under the bus and, and the rejection of families of their loved ones after they came out and these things. When you're dealing with a, um, with a community with this much trauma, you cannot, we can't expect that we do a few acts of, of kindness and that that somehow is going to make up for it. Right. We are working to create a new church history. Yes. And that takes time and that takes effort. And for instance, with all, there were so many churches that um, responded so well during, after the, um, after the Pulse nightclub shooting. And yet what happens with people who've, uh, a people group who have, experienced historical and multiple traumas in the midst of all of that the negative what is what gets highlighted in in their minds because you know all it takes is that one church that then says we wish there were more gay people in that nightclub right yeah so that they could um so that more gay people could have died yeah and that in this situation wipes out and valid in some ways because it, it reinforces the understanding that has been developed right. accurately within the community of you see Christianity is not safe and the church is unsafe for LGBT people um, and it can work against these situations. So we're working against a culture within the church that is reinforcing this understanding as we try to build a um, a new church history where LGBT people can find a safe place to know God in the church and all of that. And so I think sometimes we as pastors and church leaders want to go to LGBT people and see like, well, see, look, here's an example, or here's an example. See, we're doing well, but we can't expect that a people group to automatically be convinced that so much has decades and decades of church right. uh, marginalization has changed simply because of these things. And so we have to understand that um, this is not a process that will make us heroes in, in the eyes of LGBT people or in the eyes of the church. Um, but it is a process worth walking through in order to create a new way of 
creating spaces where LGBT people can really know God. Yeah, and I think I think to your point, I I think about this a lot, particularly um, in terms of like for for a lot of different social issues. But I, I think for me, the one where it's been most pertinent would be um, just the church's history with racism um, in America. Is mm-hmm. is like I don't I'm not and and I and I think like the language of like allyship and and allies and working together I think that's that language is important and I think it's you know it's it's kind of within the dot or you know accomplices or whatever people want to use and it's you know it's way to it's made its way into our cultural lexicon and so like you know it's it's like you said it's it's the language people use it's important to use the language that people use um but there's a part of me that's like in a lot of ways I'm not I'm not working first and foremost to to like attain a certain level of allyship so that people will like look at me and like, like you said, esteem me as like a hero. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying first and foremost to be faithful to what I believe God has called me to. And I believe, you know, as anyone who claims that they're a Christian, I, I'm trying to like live out um, the love of Christ in my life. And what does that look like? And what does that look like for the people that are around me? Um, and, and like we were talking about earlier, like, what does it mean to love the hell no people in your life? And what does it mean to, to love the people, the Samaritans? Um, and so if, if I'm not giving all of my effort and attention towards that, then I'm not necessarily living out, um, or I'm not growing in, in my faith as a disciple in Christ first and foremost. And, and the hard thing is, is like, if I'm not getting that affirmation from people and if I'm, if I'm not getting that, like, wow, like you're really trying hard as soon as that dries up, then my motivation for continuing to do it anyway is gone. Um, And so I don't know, for me, just like, I think the importance of, like you said, recognizing that like, this is something that we're not doing it to become heroes or we're not doing it to be, you know, um, to, to do uh, ministry a certain way so that we can like grow our, our churches or something like that. We're undoing historical harm and we're, we're, binding the wounds of broken people. We're weeping with those who weep and have been historically abused. And I think that that's the posture of Jesus and it's the posture of Jesus that we're called to embody. And so, yeah, I I just think that's a, that's a really good point that you made um, in the way that that it was phrased. Um, I'm, I'm curious as I was, you know, as you were talking and thinking, I was like, have you ever gotten pushback almost, I mean, and I don't know why you would have done this for this kind of church, but like, have you ever gotten pushback in the other direction from people that are just kind of like, Hey, you know, your, your, your theological foundations are off or like, you're not, you need to be more queer affirming or, or something like that. Have you ever had situations like that happen? Um, not, not from churches. Um, we, I mean, obviously there, there are, we live in a, we live in a very divided culture. Um, in a divided culture where you either believe everything that I believe or um, you're not, um, or we can't be friends or we can't um, be in community or anything like that. And we see that happening more and more to the point where if you love, love requires agreement of beliefs in everything. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so obviously we get like, I've, 
I've received criticism from conservative churches for being heretics, which I think if you're not being called a heretic for how you love people, you probably can increase your love a little bit more sometimes. <laughs> um, and we've also been, I've also been told by people that the very fact that I live celibate is, um, is hateful to myself, that I somehow am internalizing homophobia because I uh, am celibate and therefore that is wrong. Um, I, I believe both of those are, those are wrong. Like we, we live in this such a divided culture that doesn't realize love can expand beyond a belief gap. I like uh, one of our, um, one of the co-hosts of Let a Life on Sight Be podcast, Grant Hartley has said in one of our recent episodes. Queer treasure. Oh yes, the queer treasure himself, love him. Um, Said, you know, relationship many times requires differentiation. Like if we were both the exact same, um, then that, you know, (laughs) the relationship doesn't work. He's in uh, seminary for counseling, right? I, I think so. I can't remember That's exactly. Such a counseling comment, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> so hard. And it's something where I, um, so yeah, like I have, I have received pushback on the other side of people going, "Oh wow, so you just hate yourself you by just being hate, yeah, you just hate yourself, or you hate queer people simply for the fact of believing what you believe." And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not true. And um, I believe that we can have love across a spectrum of belief. And it does not require that we believe every single thing um, in agreement. Um, But I do think that what it does require is that even if I have never harmed an LGBT person in my life, and even though I am LGBT, my association with the conservative church requires that I acknowledge my part in being associated with an organization that has historically been responsible for that marginalization. And therefore I become, um, I have to acknowledge that and I have to accept that and accept my association with that. And um, I have to understand that I, um, we have to start from that place of acknowledging that before we can work anywhere else. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, So in in addition to, like you said, you were talking about the presentation of this kind of ministry as like a missiological framework. What are some other things that you've found to be effective in in helping churches um, love and and serve their LGBTQ plus members better? Um, And I guess from what I'm looking for is, um, and maybe maybe give answers to like both like churches that are, are leaning more side a but then also churches that are side b like what does that look like yeah. um in terms of like helping what, what has been effective in helping those kinds of churches love uh yeah. members better yeah connected to that i think this is like a very big thing that we've run into it's very interesting how um i've even had before um had side a churches come up to us and being like, hey, can you train us how to love LGBT people? And we're like, wait, wait, what? What are you talking about? And I think sometimes people, there's, what happens in some churches is they don't know how to love LGBT people. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, we'll just change our theology to affirming. And then that will take care of it. But they never, still, they never learn how to love LGBT people. And they find out it doesn't matter if you're affirming side A or side B, if you don't know how to love LGBT people, LGBT people won't want to go to your church. It's just, 
that simple. Um, so I, I think that sometimes churches take the cop out of, oh, we'll change our theology and that will fix everything. But that doesn't fix the very fundamental issues of how you approach these. So like some of the, one of the biggest things I have found to be critical in this is um, unified, like across your team training. Like your entire team from your head pastor to all of your life group leaders need to be trained on this. This is, this is a critical issue that if you want your church to be safe for LGBT people, you need to make sure that no matter what life group they end up going to, um, they, they, the life group leaders are trained on how to, um, how to care for trans people, how to care for um, LGBT um, gay couples, like what's gonna happen? Like what, how, is, how are these situations going to be involved? And there has to be a unified policy because many times what happens with churches is they'll, they'll start from that understanding of, oh yeah, we wanna love LGBT people, but they don't unify a training of their, their team yeah. And so one person is being treated one way in one area of the church. Another um, LGBT person is being treated one way in another area of the church. Mm-hmm. And that's going to cause situations. And, and everyone is thinking that they're embodying what the church believes. Right. Um, and so, but yet it's going to create a lot of harm in the lives of these LGBT people. I even remember one situation where um, even uh, a... a gay couple, the two members of the gay couple were treated completely different in completely different areas of ministry that they were serving in Mm -hmm. because of there was no unified church policy. Um, So I think that the biggest thing, first of all, churches need to do is get training. You cannot assume that just because you read a book or something like that, that that's going to be enough to fulfill this area of church. This is a critical, this is a critical issue for our coming like area of church. And you cannot expect to serve the wider generation without critically understanding how you're gonna serve LGBT people. And because nowadays there's even straight people that go don't go to churches because they hate how they treat LGBT people. So this is not even just about reaching LGBT people anymore. This is about reaching the next generation. Um, so I'd say unified policy is one. I would say um, the other one is talk about it. like. Many other church, another thing many churches do is like, we're just never going to talk about it. Like we'll love LGBT people, but we're never going to talk about it. And then this can can cause a few different issues. One, it can cause an issue of bait and switch where LGBT people will come to your church. They can't find a clear answer on what your theology is. Um, And then they end up being there for two years. And then they realize they can't be in a certain area or they can't, they can't serve in a certain area. They can't do a certain thing or you, you know, you're not gonna officiate a wedding after they've spent, invested two years of their lives in this community. Right. And I'm not saying that we have to put things on websites. I think there's also complications with, with putting a statement on a website, especially if you haven't gotten training, but there has to be communication mm-hmm. and making sure that any LGBT person can come into your church and be able to understand what you believe and, and teaching your, your, commun- your, your um church on what this means, you know, and, and all this. And I, I don't think that just means talking about LGBT people, but I think that t- means talking about sexuality and community. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause then the other thing I would say connected to that is um, we have to address the idolatry of marriage in our churches. Yes. Holy 
balls yet. Yeah. And I think that that's an issue that's also in society because I think that's an issue in the broader LGBT community. It is a, there, there is a extreme issue in our broader community, like com- broader culture. It's not even just the LGBT community, broader culture and the church is infected with it. That the only way to have a thriving community is in a sexual relationship. And if you are not in a sexual relationship, you are being um, kept from true community and true belonging and true intimacy. You're being harmed as, or you're- Yeah. Yeah, you're being harmed. You're not being, um, basically, essentially like, dude, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think this is just such a huge issue of like- It's huge. and, And there's even a part of me that wonders like, if if the amount of pain that um, at really everyone, but a, a particularly LGBTQ plus people um, feel could have, I mean, there would still be some pain there, but I wonder how much of it could have been minimized if they weren't just like repeatedly inundated with the idea that like marriage and like a, like sexual love is the thing that fulfills you. And is yeah. the thing that grows you. And the crazy thing is that like we expect that from our culture. We like we expect that to to be like you know do whatever you want, live your life. Yeah. You know, you're you are your own kind of you know that sort of like thing. But the thing is, is like we do that in the church all the time with how much we like we hold it up and and it's like and it's such a it's it's almost like you said it's it's kind of like a bait and switch thing too, where it's like we hold it up as like oh, you know, like it's it's just one path of many, blah, 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 but then every ministry is, is kind of geared towards this. And and um, and all of your examples are are based around the idea of marriage. And it's hard because it's yes. like we believe in the in the goodness of family, but it's it's like we believe in the uh, goodness of a particular ver- version of family that isn't always going to be the case for all members yeah. of our church. Yeah, exactly. And we worship a God who decided that the perfect way to embody himself in a human was a 30 year old single man. Right. Like this is a huge issue in our church. Like that guy would probably get thrown, like a 30 year old single man who came to a church would probably get like the police. He'd never get hired as a pastor. Yeah, I was gonna say he would never, like they'd be like, what's wrong with you? Or, you know, like, are you, what are you, what's your end game here? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we need in the church, if we really want to, well, first, a few things. First of all, we cannot put the pressure of celibacy on LGBT people in our church until we're willing to put that pressure on straight people. Uh-huh. Until you're willing to talk to your straight, the straight people in your church and saying, hey, you need to discern whether God has called you to celibacy. We don't. We automatically assume straight people are going to get married. And until we begin to work a theology, a deeper theology of singleness and celibacy that affects the entire community, not just LGBT people. We cannot put that pressure on LGBT people because it cannot just be on LGBT people with the pressure of celibacy. It need, and we need to see it not just simply as a pressure, but as an opportunity for yeah. community. Like I said, it's been a rough road to get where I'm at, but honestly, I don't even want to be married now. After I've gone through the work of like, of really cultivating what community is and developing the community I have. I love my community. I'm happy where I am, but I never would have done that without pushing through and looking through what does it mean to be celibate? And so I I think we need that deeper theology of celibacy that 
does not simply look at singleness as a waiting period till you get married. Um, we need that. And that's not just for LGBT people. There are a lot of straight people in our church that have been promised by churches that they're going to get married and they don't find, yeah, they don't find a, um, a, a, a mate. And then they're disillusioned to thinking, wait, this is what the church said I was promised, but yet no one's promised marriage. Yeah. No one is. You, no one, you couldn't see that, um, everybody who's listening to this because <laughs> you're not on the video, but I, I am one of those people who I've yeah. had a, a youth, you know, it was like one of those, like, I'm, I'm on like a, you know, one of those urban mission trips with your church. And I literally had a, a camp speaker say that like, God has like preordained a, a spouse just just for you and they're out there like thinking of and in my mind I'm like and you know like I had just been like I'd had a heart you know it's my freshman year I did a hard year with the ladies young yeah. poor young Kyle was so heartbroken but it's it's like uh it just it like looking back on that I'm like and, and well here's the craziest thing Josh is that not only did that guy say that that guy was 35 years old and not married and I'm like well, what the heck is happening for you? Dude? Like you're promising this to all of us and it hasn't even happened for you as I look back on it. And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Just the way that it, it just is kind of accepted as this normative thing that it really isn't. Yeah. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that you're a promise. Actually in more than anything, it's the opposite. Right. We, if we look at what the new Jerusalem is going to be like, celibacy is very much yeah it doesn't even last into into the new into the new heavens and the new earth no it doesn't and i love what eve tushnit a prominent like um side b author uh says is you we can no one can have a vocation of no it's one of my favorite quotes ever like you cannot we cannot have no human can have a vocation of simply what you cannot do Mm. we have to have a vocation of yes of thriving and so we need to develop that vocation of yes in celibacy. What is the vocation of yes within that? And I believe that there's so much, there's so much community, there's so much intimacy, and there's so many opportunities to serve Christ that um, I don't believe I would have if I was married. And that's not just about, oh, I'm single, so I don't got more. I have a full schedule. I, it is not about just that. I hate when people just go, oh, you're single. So you have a lot more time to like develop. God. No, that's not it. Um, there he did is, just leave all of his jobs. So he has a little bit more free time. I am a little bit more free right now <laughs> for the next two months during the sabbatical. But like, seriously. <laughs> um, yeah. So th- I, I think that that is a huge thing that we have to begin to develop a deeper understanding of singleness and celibacy and we have to address this idolatry of marriage and the nuclear family that just doesn't, doesn't work. And it's playing into the very issue that we're trying to call out into culture, but we're being hypocrites by having, we call out this obsession with sex in the, in the wider community. And yet we're just as obsessed with sex in the, um, in the church community, but in almost an opposite way, we're, we're, we're obsessed with not talking about it or simply talking about it as like the fulfillment to everything. So um, those are a few, I could go on for a lot of different things, but those are a few other things that I think um, are really, I, I, I think the only other thing that I would also say is this, 
is we need to see LGBT and like the other thing I would say for churches is we need to see LGBT people as more than just their sexuality. We have to find this balance of acknowledging that sexuality is a huge part of LGBT people's lives. It's something that we all wrestle through and we work through to try to figure out so we can't ignore it. But we also have to see that discipleship of LGBT people cannot just simply be about correcting what sexual ethics they have. Like we, there are finance issues, there's relationship issues. There's like all of these things that LGBT people are working through just as much as straight people. And so we have to see discipleship of LGBT people as much broader than deciding who they can have sex with and who they can't, um, or whether they can transition, you know, trans people or whether they can't like, that cannot be just the prominent thing that we're always talking about with LGBT people. We need to see them as, as image bearers of God and holistic people as we do with straight people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's such a, um, an important point. It's, you know, again, it's, I think it's often, the phrase is often repeated in, um, in like anti-racism that like, you know, uh, such and such people are, you know, whoever it is, Black people are not a monolith or um, Latino people are not a monolith. And yeah. the same thing, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, there's like, four, uh, four initially different letters, and then you have the plus, which is like all these other different things. Yeah. Then you have I, A, Q, P, right. like, like so many others. Yeah, right. And so it's like, well, clearly you're not dealing with a monolith. You're dealing with so no. many different things. And so if you try to take this like one size all a- approach to it and and, under- and and not recognize that like a, a trans person is having way different issues than a, a lesbian person who's having different issues from a bi person who's uh, having different issues from an intersex person. Yeah. And just not, and, and kind of lumping that together, then you're not going to get, you're not going to be providing the discipleship or the, the resources that the church is called to provide in a way that's yeah. Um, beneficial. Yeah. I, I think with that, like a lot of people think of the LGBT community as a monolith, but they don't realize that it's the, literally the complete opposite. There's very little that the LGBT community actually shares with each other. That's why there's a lot of times actually a lot of fighting in the LGBT community and a lot of divisiveness and like gay people normally are not very nice to trans people and trans people are normally marginalized a lot within the LGBT community. And I think it comes down to really the only thing that unites the LGBT community, maybe not the only thing, but the main thing is rejection, marginalization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's brought the community together is they all have suffered the understanding of marginalization, marginalization and rejection. And beyond that, there's so much diversity within their experiences to the point that like, it's hard, I can't understand like perfectly the experience of a trans person or an asexual person or a bisexual person, because that's not my experience. Mm-hmm. And so we also have to understand that, that when, as my one friend, Leslie Hudson Reynolds, who I love, uh, and they are amazing, um, says when you've met one trans person, you've met that one, one trans, trans person. person. Yeah. And that applies to the whole community. I heard one trans person say that to me um, in, uh, a, yeah. in a training. So they they have that in common. <laughs> yes, there you go. Perfect. You met one trans person, you've met one trans person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, briefly before we start to wrap up, I want to return to one kind of, you know, talking about, you talked about like clarity and, and sort of like, um, consistency in, in how churches talk about um, their their posture towards LGBTQ plus uh, members. And it's, it's like you said, I think, I think what so many people run into is, is with 
clearly like acknowledging and 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 taking a particular position, particularly if it's side B, um, in in the culture that we're in that is so polarized, it just is very quick. It like it just very quickly shuts down any kind of conversation. And so, I, I guess I'm wondering like how how have you seen people state like, hey, this is what we believe about sexuality. This is kind of where we land um, in terms of our interpretation of biblical ethics and things like that. But we want we want this to be a dialogue um, while also understanding that like as an institution, we have to, we, we have to sort of quote unquote take a position, not even necessarily because we want to, but because we feel like we should in order to like better serve people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I would say this is one of the areas where um, is one of the most difficult, and I think churches have to understand the the um, pressure and like what is really being asked of the churches that we cannot take this decision lightly of how do we explain what we believe, um, because we are working, as I said, into a community that has been marginalized and and all these things. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I'm not firmly on this and who knows if you were to ask me in a few years I might change my perspective on this but I'm, I'm, I don't always believe that a written statement on a website is the perfect way to do it because yeah. I feel like writing with something so nuanced as this especially if you haven't gotten training and especially if yeah. you haven't like included the queer people within your community like into the statement it can cause more harm than help um, and it can just stop conversations altogether. Um, I have seen multiple other ways that churches have communicated, whether by um, when they did a series on um, sexuality, like they, like I've seen one church that had like a series on their website of like culture talks where they talked about race and they talked about sexuality and they did, and they put these talks on their website. So if you wanted to hear a little bit more of the dialogue and, and I think if you are able to put some of those kind of conversations that have happened, if you especially put it in a conversation kind of way, being able to put that on a website, something that's easily accessible. Hmm. Um, I would say if we put something to the place of like, we decide we need to put something on our website, then we have to understand the huge pressure of what we're putting into whatever gets put on the website. Because once it's there, and if we try to change it, we also might get pushback from the conservative side as if we're changing our beliefs. Right. Um, but then if we decide not to put something on our website, I think we also need to understand the huge um, job that we have to make sure that we are clearly communicating in an easily accessible way what we believe. And I think some of that comes from, again, just the humble posture of wanting to more listen to LGBT people and understanding and like when those conversations happen, however it is, whether it's by from the pulpit or in one-on-one -on -one conversation or however that happens, um, that it's taking a posture of wanting to get to know people of being honest this is what we believe but yet we um want to hear you and we want to i want to get to know you as a person and i am not here to simply tell you what to do with your life i am here to walk with you and to grow with you you know like one of the most impactful things that a pastor ever did to did for me was when i was in high school and i was literally fed up with churches and I went to a new church because I'd just been kicked out of the previous one that I was in and um I heard the pastor speak and I was like I'm I get so I used to get I still get so tired when I have to go to a new church and I'm like I don't want to have to start all the conversations over again to make sure right. Right. that we're on the same page yeah. and all of this stuff and so this time I went up to the pastor 
afterwards. And I was just like, so I'm gay, deal with it. If you want me to, I can leave. If not, I'm here. And the pastor was just like, well, I don't really know a lot about this, but I'm willing to walk with you, you know? And that started, that started a, like a relationship that was really impactful for me. And we didn't always see eye to eye on things, but, um, but I think the posture of him saying, I'm not here to just simply tell you what to do, but I'm here to learn from you. You know, I, I have my understanding, but I want to hear from you. I want to grow with you. If you want to read a book on this topic, let's read it together and we'll bring both of our questions together. Um, I think taking that posture of saying, you know, for so long, we in the conservative church have been the powerhouse in, in society with the hammer, smashing everyone else with this hammer. But we misused that and we harmed people. And now we no longer have the hammer. We don't have the hammer in society. And we have to accept that in, 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 in society that we as conservative Christians do not have that on topics like sexuality. The hammer now sits in their hands mm-hmm. and we sit humbly um, to in community with this. So um, I think taking that approach is really where this starts and there's no easy way to do it. And I think that's where we have to start is understanding the weight of our, the, the weight of our position in trying to honor LGBT people with being honest and being humble. Yeah, that's, man, that's so good. One last quick question before we go. Yeah. I've kept you way over. I'm so sorry. I'm, um, I'm happy to be here longer. You're also, so. <laughs> you shouldn't have told me. <laughs> um, so I, I guess my last quick question would be, um, how, how do you sort of approach people that kind of viewed this conversation almost as a non-starter. Um, and, and we've got we've gotten into, you know, some of the, the conservative side, which I'm a little bit more well-versed in, in that, mm-hmm. but like, how do you view it from like, from, and, and I've sort of even more recently just been reading about like sort of trans issues and stuff like that. And, and I feel like in, so, in some of these situations, it's like, if you're not, if you're not like a hundred percent quote unquote affirming of like every, it's like you said, of every aspect of what that person thinks, then they're just like, well, I'm just not, I'm just not going to talk to you or I'm just not going to go to your church kind of thing. So, and, and, and so I'm wondering like for you, it's like how, how, like when you, um, or like when someone says, or like, if you're talking to somebody and they're like, and you're like, hey, I'm celibate and this is why I think this. And they're like, well, I can't even have a conversation with you because I think you're, you're fundamentally wrong. And mm-hmm. how, how do you sort of handle those, those conversations? Yeah. Um, so in my situation, normally when I, like, so for instance, here in my, here in my town, like where I, I live in Florida, um, majority of my friends who are LGBT are not Christian. Um, we, we see life very fundamentally different. Um, like they're not, they're not even just like affirming Christians. They're like non-Christians. They do not believe in God. And, um, and so I know like at the beginning of our friendship, it was very difficult because even the very fact that I was a believer was like very, um, weird for them. Um, but then on top of that, when we had the conversation of, yeah, so I don't have sex because of my beliefs. Um, became an even bigger conversation. Um, 
And I think for me, like, um, a lot of that comes with, I am very careful with, um, in many of those conversations, like I want to try and start those conversations based on where we have common ground. Like we have common ground on the fact that we honor and respect each other as human beings made in the image of God. Like, okay, we have that. Um, If I'm talking with queer people, we have the unified experience of being queer. Like we've probably, some of them may have been through conversion therapy. Some of them may have been like rejected by their families, all this stuff. We have this shared experience. Um, And if they're, even if they're Christian, if they, even if they're affirming Christian, we, we at least believe that Jesus is Lord. So like, let's start where we can on those like realms of things, like these kind of things. And let's try and find common ground. Um, and then with that, um, trying to show that just because I have a different view does not mean I look down on another person. Mm. and does not mean that I'm dehumanizing them or any of these kind of things. Like, I love my friends. We have different sexual ethics. We have different beliefs. Um, But I would be there for them in a heartbeat. And some of that can't be simply said in words. Some of it has to be proved through actions. So Yes, most of my, there was a lot of my friends, like, I can't expect that a person who goes, "Mm, I'm sorry, I don't know how I feel about this. I can't expect in one conversation to suddenly change that person's view. Mm -hmm. Right. I can maybe begin to share like, well, this is, this is where, like, this is my belief. And this is like where I'm leading for my life. I'm not telling you what to do with your life, but this is my belief based on my faith. And especially if I'm talking to a non-Christian, well, there's a lot of other layers before we get to sexual ethics. There's a whole oh, thing like, yeah. is Jesus God? Kind right. Of there's, thing. there's so many with that. I'm like, this is a lot of those conversations. I'm like, if, if you aren't, if you don't consider yourself a Christian or somebody who goes to church, like there, there's like, we have a whole lot more to work through than just, than just our, our exactly. understanding of sexual ethics. Exactly. And so I feel like many times, like when we talk to LGBT people, we want to go right to that. But it's like, for instance, me and my LGBT friends, we rarely talk about it because there's a much bigger issue of the fact of like, is, is God real? That becomes our conversation. Um, And uh, so I, I I always have to accept that, like, for instance, with my friends, there was a lot of hesitation upon understanding of this. And I wasn't going to change that in one conversation. Mm -hmm but we have to be committed for the long haul. Like I think there, I was listening to another podcast um, that really impacted me and I'm going to, I can't remember which one it was, but it was um, talking about ministry in one of the um, indigenous communities in here in in North America. And they were talking to a missionary um, within that community. And at the end of the conversation, they asked them, what is one thing you wish the broader church community would learn from your ministry um, among the indigenous communities. And he said that he wishes the um, church would learn that time works differently in different communities, especially in marginalized communities, Mm. that we from an American fast paced society want to go into a relationship and say, how can I change this person? Which first of all is a bad starting place in a relationship. But how can I change this person in three years kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And first of all, if we're starting from trying to just simply change a person, then 
um, we're starting on a completely wrong right. foot. Yes. Um, but then on top of that, when things haven't changed as we want them to in three years, we go, okay, well, this isn't working. I'm going to go on to the next person or the next city. And that's why he said a lot of times missionaries in indigenous communities will just move on and then they make no impact when really indigenous communities, because of the marginalization that they have experienced and because of just how their culture works, it can take decades to develop those relationships to where they finally trust them. And if you're not willing to put in that amount of time, you're never going to do it. And so like, we cannot just be simply a people focused on numbers over amount of time. Like this is not a business. Mm -hmm. This is a soul winning, (laughs) soul winning is probably a bad word too. Um, This is just a ministry of caring for people of, I am going to be in my, in my friends' lives because I want to show them the love of Christ. And God is in charge of what that looks like and how it happens or over what time it happens and all of this. And I'm not in my friends' lives to change them. I'm in my friends' lives to be the experience of God, to help show the love of God in their lives and allow them to see that God wants a relationship with them. And God's going to work very differently in their lives than he worked in mine. Yeah, it's it's such a, I think, um, I can't remember who I was talking about this with. I think it was just a friend of mine who was, she was basically just saying like, when you think about it, like so probably like 90% of ministry is just your presence. Yeah. Which, which is like, you know, people, you know, obviously like hack at that and say like, oh, but you know, you also have to have these, this and that things. It's like, I think in, in so many ways, like the reason why the church didn't have the or has has had such a among many reasons why they've had such an animus uh, or a, a problematic relationship with the LGBTQ community is that they just didn't show up and other people and other people did and other people like took that spot and just said like hey I you know like we're we're kind of in this with you and we're gonna go and, and figure this out and churches and churches did it. And, and this is, and I think this goes for like so many different issues not even just issues of um, LGBT plus issues or um, sexual ethics or, or race or anything. Like there's literally just, I think, and even on like a personal sense, you think about the people that have impacted you the most. It was literally just the people that you were proximate to that were just, that were kind of like in your, in your lives, they weren't really going anywhere. You, you did, they saw like the worst of you and also didn't, and that wasn't enough to like scare them off. It's like that level of vulnerability. Um, I think you're not going to, it's like you said, you're not going to get that within two or three years. No. Yeah. And we have to be committed for the long run um, in people's lives and um, understanding that their road is going to be different than we think it should be. It's going to be because God works very differently in everyone's life. Yeah, Absolutely. Josh, thank you so much for being on. This was such an awesome conversation. Um, I really enjoyed getting to hear your story and just hearing your insights into into some really uh, important conversations. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. I've really enjoyed. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been awesome, and you're doing a great work on the podcast. I've listened. It's awesome. Oh well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, I will see you later. And for everyone else, we will catch you next time on the Orthodoxical Podcast. Thank you.